Today I'd like to explore with you a little bit about some of the teachings that were offered by the Buddha and um, in the tradition, uh, in the, uh, the tradition that followed along from the time of the Buddha, around uh, practice in daily life. And this was something that was part of the tradition, so uh, I'd like to explore, go back to those, and see what what it is that that the uh, tradition has to say about practicing in daily life. With a kind of an emphasis uh, on what our motivation is, what our what our uh, um, purpose is behind what we do. So this teaching really is based in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's main instructions on mindfulness meditation. There's a section in there uh, in which the Buddha talks about mindfulness of everyday activities. So I'll read read this section to you. When going forward and returning... One makes oneself fully alert when looking toward and looking away, when bending and extending one's limbs. This is directed to monks. So when carrying one's outer cloak and upper robe and bowl, when eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, when urinating and defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and remaining silent, one makes oneself fully alert. So this is uh, this this term fully alert is translated in various ways. Sometimes it's translated as full awareness, sometimes as clear comprehension. The Pali term is sampajanya. And here in the in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha is basically saying, "Be alert in all of your activities; nothing excluded." So he's really pointing us right into our daily lives. Kind of as an aside here, um, I find it uh, interesting. I, I read a book that was discussing this Satipatthana Sutta, the whole of the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness meditation, and. Um, this uh, this book, the, the author of this book pointed out that there was actually only one of the instructions in this discourse that explicitly said, sit cross-legged and close your eyes. Mm-hmm. And that was the uh, instruction to pay attention to your breathing. All of the other meditation instructions are much broader. So I take this kind of as the... Um, you know, the enjoinder to pay attention to all of these, um, all of these ways the Buddha suggests of being mindful, being mindful of, of our bodily sensations, being mindful of our feeling, whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, and, and neutral, whether we're aware of what our mind is doing. All of these we can engage with in any posture, in any time, at any time of the day. So, 
this ex- section explicitly refers to daily activities. And it's interesting to me that he, he, he even puts in there urinating and defecating, you know, what, what we might consider the most um, mundane experience we have during the day. He says, this is an activity that we can use for waking up. And that really, that really highlights it for me, you know. Everything that we do can be a part of this exploration of waking up. So the um, the commentaries or the the tradition that has followed on from what the Buddha taught, the people who kind of came after and explored, well, what did he mean by that, and wrote books about it. Um, in the commentaries, they take this section on clear comprehension and expand it and explore it in a little bit um, different ways. And so I'd like to explore that with you today. So in this teaching, um, the commentaries actually say this term and this section are pointing not just to you know being aware while walking and um, bending and stretching, but also being aware of kind of the purpose of your activities and connecting, seeing if the purpose of our activities can be connected with the Dharma. So clear comprehension, this teaching on clear comprehension begins to aim us towards a life that is lived from a a perspective of purpose. Purpose connected with the Dharma. So how do our activities purposely support waking up, becoming free from clinging? How do our activities to support that? How can we turn our activities to support a deeper understanding of the wisdom that the Buddha offered? So if this sounds restrictive or, I don't know, you know, it's like everything has to be purposeful, you know, it might sound a little bit tight or constricting. Just kind of reflect on... Um, how at odds we feel when we're not really engaged in a way that is uh, integrated with what's most important to us. And how much happier we are when we're really um, living our lives in accordance with something that is meaningful. So the... um, the teaching on clear comprehension, the commentaries point to four different aspects of clear comprehension. Clear comprehension of purpose, of what's the, the, the motivation, the purpose behind our activities. Clear comprehension of suitability, uh, the suitability of our actions. Clear comprehension of what's called the domain of our practice. And I'll describe more about what that means and then clear comprehension of reality, of what actually is here. We've talked about this over the week a little bit, the the distinction between uh, what our minds add to experience and what's actually here. 
I'd like to explore each of these, but I think I'll put most of the emphasis on the first two, on clear comprehension of purpose and on uh, suitability. So the way I look at these first two, clear comprehension of purpose and clear comprehension of suitability, is it's about looking at what we're doing and how what we're doing connects with our aspirations, with our aims and purposes of our lives. So it's about connecting with what we're doing and why we're doing it. But this really, it gets into the level of content here, of, of the actual, of what we're doing. I think it does kind of get into that terrain a little bit. So how is what we're engaged in, how's the activities that we're engaged in support our deepest aspirations. And so I think that this uh, exploration around purpose in particular, it's helpful to begin with a contemplation or a reflection around what are your aspirations? What are your deepest aspirations? What is it that you would like your life to be aimed towards? So to begin this reflection, I mean, we, it, it, I think it's helpful to begin by reflecting on this. It's something I think that we can refine over time to begin to explore. What is it? What is the, it that's most important to me? In this reflection of what is my purpose or my aim in my life, I'm not talking so much about things we want to accomplish, but more about what's the meaning for that? What's the underlying heart connection with why we want to accomplish that? So this kind of reflection on what our aspiration is, we might begin by thinking, well, I want to do this, and I'd like to have, you know, to... to accomplish that, but I'm suggesting that in thinking about those things that we want to accomplish, to go a level deeper, why? Why is it that that's important to you? What is the heart connection there? It might be, you know, at one level, it might be uh, the simplicity of just being kind, of caring. So reflecting on your priorities and to begin to explore the the deeper undercurrents of why. Why those are important. So when we have a sense of what our our deeper intentions are, our deeper, uh, what, what what our heart's desire is, Um, then we can begin to look at what we're doing 
look at what we're engaged in and begin to, to, to see, does it support this? Is it in line with this, 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 this wish, this aspiration? Or is it taking me away from it? So the teaching on clear comprehension of purpose is pointing us to framing our lives around the Dharma, around the teachings of ethics, of non-harming, of kindness, compassion, around the teachings of wisdom, of where where true happiness can be found. We so misunderstand that. So reorienting our, our purpose towards a deeper kind of happiness, not just the happiness of having things, So in looking at our activities, um, now this may seem like a simple thing, and it is a simple thing, but it, I think it has really a deep reverberations that when we have a sense of what our deeper intentions are, our deeper motivations, our aspirations are, then we can connect with that in simple ways within our everyday activities. So as a kind of a simple example, you know, if you you find that kindness is an important um, motivation for you, think about your activities in that light. So going to the grocery store, you know, going to the grocery store, you've got the kind of obvious kind of intention to uh, provide support and sustenance for yourself and for your family, and, and that's a wholesome, beautiful intention. So connecting with that, I mean, not to just go to the grocery store and, um, you know, buy your food and not think about it, but actually connect with it. Okay, this is this is part of what I'm doing here. I'm supporting, sustaining, nourishing myself by buying this food. And then we can go a level deeper than that, perhaps, to connect with some of our more core motivations, our core aspirations. The aspiration to be kind. Just bringing that aspiration into the grocery store with us might change how we interact with the people in the line, with the cashier, just in simple ways. You know, I'm not talking about soulful gazing into their eyes. Just, <laughs> you know, just you know, treat them like a, a, a human being. I find I find myself, you know, I can be so caught up in what I'm doing that I hardly even notice the cashier sometimes. You know, so. It just to connect with that. No, what, I, what I'm about here is kindness and connection. Can I connect in a simple way? A smile. How are you today? You know, it's actually quite amazing how 
how beautiful that kind of interchange can be. Um, you know, taking a walk and seeing someone and giving, you know, smiling. At one point, I was doing a, kind of a walk for my health at the same time every morning. Since then, I've changed the times, and I'm, I'm not seeming to run into people very much the, now with the time I'm walking. But this time, I was walking. It seems like a lot of people were out walking at the same time I was walking, and I seemed to run into this, you know, five or six people, and often people that I recognized. I didn't know who they were, but I just kind of began to recognize them, and so we began exchanging this this smile and I just began noticing you know how much it impacted me both to give a smile and to receive one how much happiness and lightness there was the sense of just a connection in just a moment it's quite a lovely a lovely thing to do to bring the, to bring these intentions into our everyday activities so as we consciously connect with these intentions, you know, finding ways to connect our everyday mundane activities to our deeper purpose, it begins to strengthen that purpose. And the activity of going on a walk and going to the grocery store can can, can feel like it has a deeper resonance with us. It's not just some you know, thing that we have to do to get on to the next thing. It becomes a meaningful part of our day to connect with our aspirations. So as we explore how we do or don't connect with our intentions, our, our aspirations in our activities. We're likely to find some places where there's some rub, you know, some times where we're um, not really wanting to act in our best interests, you know. I want to turn on the television right now and just space out. Or um, So, you know, the, the, the teachings, um, I think it's best not to have a tight fist around this kind of a teaching to kind of use it as a, a, a way to flagellate ourselves if we're not um, always acting with the highest aspiration. You know, it's like, ah, oh, I should be doing that and you know, feeling really bad about things that we're doing. But rather to begin to just explore what's going on that I'm feeling like, you know, I want to space out right now. What's happening there? You know, the, this teaching on clear comprehension doesn't mean that we can't relax or spend time with friends or, or even space out. You know, actually, these things can ha- these things can have a can be connected to our deeper purpose. Even spacing out. You know, at one point, one one morning, I was sitting at breakfast and noticing that the mind kept going into this space out space and when I noticed that I would kind of go oh wake up it's important to be alert and awake while meditating you know while while being present in daily life so I'd kind of like you know wake myself up and you know pay attention to the food you know eating whatever 
But that, it kept doing it. The mind kept doing that space out. It's like, okay, well, let me just be mindful of that. You know, let me just be aware while the mind goes into that spaced out space. And I did that. And it was almost like this relief. It's like, oh yeah, I'm really tired. You know, the mind needs a break right now. Okay, you know, I just just let it. You know, go as it was doing. Let it do that. And, you know, after a few minutes, it, it, like, it had taken its rest, and then it was like, oh, I'm awake now. <laughs> so, you know, to, to have some agenda of what it looks like to be acting in line with our deepest purpose can be a little bit uh, restrictive. So to notice, you know, when you are engaging in ways that that seem like they may not be the highest uh, motivation, connected with your highest motivation, look at what's happening. What are the motivations that are happening? What's going on there? Be curious. Observe our motivations, our actions, and the consequences of our actions. These things will help us to understand what is skillful, and what is not skillful. I think that um, in this exploration too, um, we may sometimes find that our initial idea of what we think of as our best interest may be a little bit diluted. You know, that there are ways that we... um, can fool ourselves somehow. So a kind of a, a, an example on this, um, you know, happiness is a wholesome motivation. And yet there are many ways that we can go about trying to connect with that motivation that are not so helpful. When we're motivated Um, out of greed to have something to make us happy. When we're motivated out of aversion to get rid of something to make us happy. Those motivations, those underlying motivations, um, kind of, that's where the rub is. That's where some of the rub is. So I think in this kind of exploration, the Buddha's teaching, teachings on ethical conduct are really helpful as a kind of a ground for at least not engaging in ways that are harmful to oneself or others. So that if you see that your actions are causing harm, either in yourself or in others, even if it's an action that you're thinking, you know, this is in my best interest. If you see there's suffering happening around this action, reevaluate. Or this is in others' best interest. You know, reevaluate. So, an example about this, it's a kind of a poignant example. Um, some of you, I think, have heard me tell this story before. Um, there's a story about a uh, a naturalist who, when he was young, he was kind of like this budding little naturalist. And um, 
he um, he had a butterfly collection, and he had a collection of the, the the chrysalids that would hatch out into butterflies. And so he was very you know excited to watch this whole process. And um, and one day he noticed that there was one of a, a crack in one of the chrysalids, and, and he watched and watched what happened. And this you know this butterfly began to emerge and you know struggle out of the cocoon and. The abdomen got distended, and this fluid began to pump out of the abdomen, and the wings started to work. And this naturalist watched this whole process and felt a lot of compassion for the butterfly as it was emerging from its cocoon because it looked like it was such a struggle to come out of the cocoon. And so as the other chrysalids began to crack open, he decided to make himself useful and to ease the crack open so that they wouldn't have to work so hard to get out of their cocoon. And what he found happened was that these butterflies kind of slid out of the cocoon, dropped onto the ground, walked around for a couple of minutes, and then died. What he didn't understand where his confusion was, where his delusion was, is that he didn't understand that that struggle was necessary for the fluid to get pumped over the wings of the butterfly so that the butterfly could fly. So this is an example where his motivation was in line with his aspiration. Compassion of, you know, it was, it was connected with compassion. The action was connected with compassion. And yet there was suffering that resulted. And so this is a situation, you know, it's not to beat yourself up for that, but to learn from your mistakes, to learn from the suffering. It's like when there's suffering happening around you, even if you're acting in your what you think of as your highest aspiration, if there's suffering, notice that, take it in. What is it that I need to learn here? What is it that I don't understand? So Nyanaponika Tara, who is a, a German monk, I mentioned him the other day, um, he wrote a, a, an article about this topic of clear comprehension, and he had a beautiful phrase in with respect to this exploration around our purpose and the times that we find we're either not acting in line with our true purpose, you know, those times where we're just wanting to blow, blow off steam, or, uh, or where we get confused and or don't have the, the wisdom to act skillfully even within our deeper aspiration. He has a phrase uh, to help us with this. He says, We aim for a peaceful penetration of the irrational regions of our mind. So as we make this exploration and... Um, Look at our part of this is around looking at our motivations, looking at what's underlying our actions. Are we motivated by greed, by aversion, by delusion? Those kinds of motivations will tend to create suffering around us, in ourselves and around us. If we're motivated out of non greed, non aversion, non delusion, or to put it more positively, 
out of generosity, out of kindness, out of wisdom. That will tend to lead us towards happiness. And you will find mixed motivations will exist. You'll find this in your in your mind. As you make this exploration, you'll see, for instance, you might see a wish to offer some uh, something helpful to somebody, you know, be be of service to somebody. And see that as a just a generous, you know, sense of wanting to offer. And yet there's this sense of and maybe they'll do something for me back. You know, so it's not quite just a pure offering. It's got a little bit of of wanting in there. Mixed motivations will exist in our in our experience. So this isn't about trying to somehow like excise them and say, that doesn't exist, I'm gonna, you know, kind of take a knife and cut it out, or that's a bad motivation. That's a bad motivation, I should get rid of that one. That kind of uh, way of exploring is it brings aversion into <laughs> into the mind if we're exploring uh, exploring it's like that's a bad motivation. I should get rid of that one. That's aversion. So the the exploration is recognize. Can you be honest with yourself? Recognize when these mixed motivations exist. And something I like to suggest for people is when you recognize that there are mixed motivations. When you see, yes, there is this generous, this sense of wanting to ex- to wish uh, to act in a generous way or to offer something out of service. You know, there, there can be a kind of sense of openness and connection on that side, and yet there's a little bit of this, oh, but I want something back. So to acknowledge that both sides are there, and kind of to see if you can, in making the action, connect more fully to the wholesome side of the intention. To acknowledge that the unwholesome intention is there, but kind of see if you can land a little bit more fully in the open-hearted side of the motivation. So we need to learn how to relate skillfully to our mixed motivations and not have aversive attitudes towards those ones where we find that rub, we find that, well, that's not quite what I'd like. That's not how I want to be. I want to be pure. I want to be loving. I want to be kind and generous, and I'm feeling these other things. Well, the, the practice is a gradual practice. It's a gradual wearing away of our the ways that we cling, the ways that we hold on, the ways that we push away. So these mixed motivations will be with us for a long time. So finding ways to relate skillfully to them. So one of the things that, um, you know, a, a teaching around the, these, uh, you know, framing our experience in terms of the Dharma, uh, essentially looking at how can we act in line with the Dharma, just our everyday activities. There's a, a teaching from the Buddha around generosity that I really love this. He's talking about what, we do, what the monks would do daily, you know, every day after they had their um, meal. They'd take their alms bowl and rinse it out and then toss out the water. And he said, 
Even if one throws away the rinsings of a pot or cup into a village pool or pond, wishing that the living beings there may live on them, even this would be a source of beneficial results, not to speak of gifts to human beings. So he's pointing to just the simple everyday activities and, and turning to, how can, how can I frame this, essentially? Can this be framed from a perspective of the Dharma? In this case, from the perspective of generosity. This is something you do anyway. You know, every day the monks would throw out their water after rinsing their bowl. And he's pointing to that activity can be imbued with the wish for goodwill of other beings. May other beings live on the scraps of the food from my bowl. So reflecting on how we can reframe, in a sense, much of our ordinary activities in terms of the Dharma, in terms of generosity, our financial system tends to put a bunch of layers between us and, and other people. And so it doesn't feel much. I mean, here in this system, it's really beautiful. I have a very direct sense of receiving generosity and offering generosity. But most of our financial system, you know, when I go out to a restaurant, you know, it doesn't feel like it's generous of them to offer me the food. I'm paying for the food, right? I mean, it doesn't doesn't have that kind of sense of exchange. But I was out for a dinner with a colleague of mine and as we were paying for the meal, he, he brought up a reflection that I think he was having in that moment. He said, have you ever thought of how the fact that we're here at this restaurant and having this meal is offering a livelihood to the people who are working here? And I had to say, I hadn't. I had to admit I had not thought of that. So we can, we can think about our activities. I mean, you know, the simple act of going out for dinner and offering a tip and even just paying for the meal provides livelihood for people, a, a wholesome livelihood for people. Other gestures can also be seen through a framework of, of dana, of giving. You know, simple thing like driving on the freeway and, and easing off the accelerator when somebody's coming on to give them an easy merge, you know, giving them some space. So you can do that. You may do that kind of automatically, perhaps, or maybe you rush to close up the gap. Um, but in any case, if you choose to, to kind of back off, to connect with the fact that this is, this is a generous act, this is offering something. This connecting, again, this is connecting with some of the Dharma, uh, the Dharma purpose of our, of our lives. The second aspect on the teaching about suitability, teaching of uh, the suitability of our actions, this is connected to purpose, but it, and it's uh, you know it's it's related in a way to what I was just talking about this framing our activities from the perspective of the Dharma, but it's looking at our activities and uh, looking at are they suitable with respect to what our aspirations are. Some activities would not be suitable. I mean, going out and robbing a bank, that would not be suitable activity. There's many other activities in our lives that may not feel like they're deeply, intimately connected with our uh, 
highest aims, like going to the grocery store, for instance, and yet we can uh, connect with, we can determine they are suitable because they're providing support for us, providing support for our families. We can, we can connect with that uh, suitability and then see, again, can we connect with a deeper uh, way to engage with that from a Dharma perspective. So um, Nyanapanika says that partly this teaching on suitability acknowledges that it's not always possible to be the most purposeful in all of our activities. And he calls this looking at what's the art of the practicable. What's practical? So I'm going to give you, tell you an example from my own life on this. This was kind of a, a, a major exploration for me um, because there was a period of time where I felt a kind of a big conflict around what I was doing and what I wanted to be doing. So I wanted to be dedicating my life to the Dharma. I wanted to be studying, practicing on retreats, and... Um, what I had to do much of the day was to go to work and write manuals about 3D computer graphics. <laughs> and there was, a, you know, there was a there was a sense of, you know, this isn't what I want to be doing. I want to be spending my time with the Dharma. And I began exploring for myself, you know, there was a, at some point there was a recognition or a shift in my mind. This was the biggest shift that happened was that I recognized this livelihood is the very thing that's allowing me to practice the Dharma. You know, rather than being in the way, it actually was the whole kind of foundation through which I could practice the Dharma. It gave me the the way to provide food for myself, to earn an income so that I could go on retreats, to put a roof over my head, so that shift, it was like it was like a 180 degree shift around the my livelihood. And when that shift happened, I stopped resenting the work. That was a big a big shift, you know, to, to stop resenting the work. So what the work then became was it was purposeful for my uh, my 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 aims. It supported my deepest aspiration. And then um, the exploration began to be, okay, how do I make this part of my practice? So beginning to engage with mindfulness in daily life as I'm sitting at the computer typing and noticing what goes on, on in my mind, being kind to my coworkers. So bringing in the mindfulness into... Uh, the day, into the daily life. So this comes back to the Satipatthana Sutta, what the Buddha said. One is fully aware while going and coming to the copier. One is fully aware while extending and bending one's (laughs) arms to type on the computer. You know, So to begin to... um, bring that in as well. And for me, it, it kind of became like, you know, I worked at Sony, 
big company, you know, Sony. You know, it's like I walked into Sony. It was like I was walking into my monastery. <laughs> this is where I practice. You know, my cubicle. This is my, this is my cave. <laughs> you know, just reorient yourself. It becomes much more meaningful and supportive for waking up, fully aware, fully alert. So I'll just talk very briefly about the last two. Um, Clear comprehension of domain is actually kind of connected with what I was just talking about. Domain, uh, the term in Pali is gochara, which basically is a field where cows graze. So what is the field of our meditation? What is the domain of our meditation? And for, I think, our purposes as lay people, all of our activities are our domain. Can we keep awareness in mind throughout the day? Being aware of our intentions, our actions, being mindful when we're closing down, when we're open. Shanti Deva, who was a, an 8th century Buddhist scholar, has this great reflection. How can the practice of mindfulness be performed under these very circumstances? This is a great question for us. It's, the, it's our koan. It's our, it's our daily koan, our moment-to-moment koan. Nothing is outside of this domain. We can wake up to every single moment. This is a challenge. (laughs) And being uh, patient with how hard it is, very helpful. And the other piece I think is really supportive for this aspect of um, clear comprehension of domain is to uh, keep trying. You know that it, there's a there's an aspect there's a teaching called the ten perfections, which are ten qualities that we cultivate on the path and that support our awakening. Patience is one of them. Another one of them is is called resolve or determination, and this I think is also really important in working with our daily life practice. That every time we recognize that we've forgotten and haven't been paying attention. You know, that moment of remembering that we've forgotten isn't a moment to say, well, obviously I can't do this, you know, forget about it. It's a moment to reconnect with our intention. I'm going to keep trying. This is my aspiration. So reconnecting with the aspect of purpose and suitability. Whenever we remember that we've forgotten. So that's a kind of a resolve each time to reconnect with that intention and bring in the patience with that because this is this is way harder than being on retreat to bring our mindfulness all through our daily lives. Conditions here are really good, supportive for mindfulness practice. When we go out into the world, it gets much harder. So many things that 
will pull on you to distract you away from mindfulness. So these first three types of clear comprehension, clear comprehension of purpose, of suitability, and of domain, um, I look at these as ways that we can actively (laughs) engage in our... um, in our lives with this teaching in a way. You know, we can align ourselves with our purpose. We can uh, ensure and look at what activities are suitable or not suitable. um, We can um, connect with our daily activities as a field of mindfulness. This last one, clear comprehension of reality, um, this is, in some ways, it's more of a result of the practice. It's the um, another way this is framed. The, the 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 actual poly for this would be more um, accurately translated as non-delusion, clear comprehension of non-delusion. So this is is really, you know, there's so many ways that we have veils and filters in front of our, our, our um, th- through which we're seeing our experience, essentially. We have these veils through which we're seeing our experience that distort how we see things. So this is delusion. These veils, these distortions are delusion. So there are different ways that delusion um, it can be helpful to understand a little bit about what delusion is to begin to understand what this clear comprehension of non-delusion. Often we think of delusion as just being kind of not connecting or spacing out. Um, that's a form of delusion. But there's some deeper forms. There's a form of delusion that has to do with, with um, kind of our the views that we hold in through through our through our culture let's say um, so uh, or through the way we were raised you know we might have we might have some views and opinions about how things should be um, so this is kind of a you know the delusion of views a kind of classic story around this is the story of the blind man and the elephant. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, I'll just briefly tell you to kind of give you a sense of it. it this is actually a teaching story from the Buddha. Um, I don't know if it was in in the time of India, kind of a teaching story in that time, but it's a very it's it's found in the suttas, the story of the blind man and the elephant. And so these blind men were brought to an elephant, and each one was, you know, asked to touch a certain part of the elephant. So one touched the legs and one touched the trunk and one touched the tusks and one touched the ears. And then after they had been exposed to the elephant in that way, they were asked to describe the elephant. And the one you know, touching the legs said an elephant is like a post. The other one touching the trunk said it's like a hose. Another one touching the ears says it's like a winnowing basket. And because this a view had been born from their direct experience, they got really angry with each other. It's like, you know, you're wrong. No, this is what an elephant is like. No, you're wrong. This is what an elephant is like. 
So this is the kind of way that we, you know, having had experience, we have a certain kind of limited perspective, perhaps. We're told things, we believe things that we're told, you know. Teachers tell us things, you know. The earth goes around the sun. Okay, you know, we all believe that. That's a fine thing to believe. Um, 3,000 years ago, they were saying, the sun goes around the earth, you know. That was the perspective. And, you know, actually from direct experience, that's what it looks like, so who would think otherwise? So these um, these views that form uh, kind of alter perhaps the way that we see experience. You know, if that blind man went up and touched the side of the elephant, he might think, not an elephant, something else, that's something else. Because that didn't come in line with his, his views. And there's a deeper form of delusion. So those kinds of views that form based on a cultural conditioning, what our parents tell us, what they're told in school, that's kind of the second level of delusion. The deepest layers of delusion, I would say, are probably, they're more um, human. They're the human forms of delusion. They're the ones that we all share, irrespective of what culture we're in. And these are the delusions around the kind of fundamental aspects of experience that we tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is um, unreliable as a source of happiness, as, as something that is reliable as a source of happiness. We tend to take what is not self to be self. So these are some more fundamental kinds of delusions that we live our lives through. So exploring our experience with kind of the rec- with the, the teaching, these are you know the, the, the teachings around impermanence, unreliability, and not self may or may not be things that we can immediately connect with and resonate with. But we can begin to explore our experience kind of with these teachings almost in the back of our minds. And we begin to see as we engage with our experience, impermanence is is often one of the easiest things, the first things that we begin to see. We also begin to see how unreliable any experience is as a place for happiness, basically because it's impermanent. So we start to see this directly. So these uh, these delusions begin to get undermined through this meeting of our direct experience. And the Buddha also said that this aspect of, of um, seeing what is not self as self, that that also gets undermined. In one, in one teaching, he um, offered to a monk who came to him and said, teach me what you have to offer in brief. And the Buddha said, in the scene is only the scene. This is how you should train yourself. In the scene is only the scene, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. This is what Gil was talking about last night meeting our experience at this level of just what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized. This teaching goes on. He says, when for you, in the scene is only the scene, 
and the herd is only the herd, etc. There will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there nor between the two. This is the end of suffering. So to me what this points to is that the recognition of not-self is a result of this meeting experience. In the scene is only the scene. In the herd is only the herd. When we engage in that way, we will start to understand this truth of not-self. That, there, that, that everything is simply a process. There, there is something here, in a way, but what we think of as self is not a reality. There's just this ever-ending flow, process, change. So this truth begins to be revealed to us. So I often like to say, you know, if you um, you can't connect with this aspect of the teaching, don't worry about it. You know, just meet your experience. Just know what you are meeting. In the scene is only the scene, and the herd is only the herd. Engage with the domain of mindfulness. Connect with the purpose, the intention of the Dharma. And this uh, freedom will be the result. So let's just sit for a moment. Mm-hmm.